0: Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. Songcraft brings you in-depth
1: interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you
0: definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com/songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow.
1: You're listening to "Just Call Me Lonesome," the top 10 debut country single written and performed by today's guest, Texas songwriter extraordinaire Radney Foster. Radney has written over a dozen top 10 country hits, including Colin Ray's Anyone Else, Keith Urban's Raining on Sunday, and Sarah Evans' A Real Fine Place to Start. He initially hit the scene with songwriting partner Bill Lloyd, with whom he penned Sweethearts of the Rodeos, Since I Found You. The pair gained success as performers with the top 10 singles Crazy Over You, Sure Thing, What Do You Want From Me This Time, and Fair Shake, earning four nominations for CMA Vocal Duo of the Year. Foster's debut solo album, Del Rio, Texas, 1959, spawned five charting singles, including the top 10 hit Nobody Wins. He has gone on to release nine additional albums as a highly respected singer songwriter while continuing to have his material recorded by others. Notable highlights from the Foster songbook include the Mavericks' I Got You, the Dixie Chicks' cover of Godspeed Sweet Dreams, Dirks Bentley's recording of Sweet and Wild, Pat Green's top 40 single Three Days, Jack Ingram's top 20 single Measure of a Man, Keith Urban's chart-topping take on I'm In, as well as Somebody Take Me Home from Kenny Chesney's number one triple platinum album The Road and the Radio, and I Knew You That Way from Luke Bryan's multi-platinum number one album Tailgates and Tan Lines. The long list of additional artists who've recorded Radney's songs includes Guy Clark, Hootie and the Blowfish, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Brooks and Dunn, Gary Allen, Kenny Loggins,
0: and Darius Rucker. You know, just hearing that song, Just Call Me Lonesome, reminds me so much of of hearing that song on the radio. Yeah. And kind of that whole era and and what that time was in Nashville and in country music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kind of coming out of the whole Ronnie Millsap, uh, Kenny Rogers, kind of, there was a very. Kind of pop, pop country, yeah. country vibe going on, and then you had guys like Lyle Lovett and Steve Earle and Nancy Griffith, Kelly Willis, yeah. uh, Randy Travis, Randy Travis, um, and of course Foster and Lloyd with yeah. with Rodney Foster bringing sort of I guess they called it new traditionalism yeah. to the radio, and it was an interesting thing because it was the sort of a throwback to country's roots but it was being made by a younger generation that grew up on buck owens and the beatles right and sort of brought that that new kind of twist on the roots of country which i thought was like really cool and experimental even though it was rootsy and refreshing and i look back on that period in country music with a lot of fondness.
0: Yeah, I mean you you heard, you know, western swing and you heard the sound of like steel guitars and fiddles again and you right. heard that kind of slapback delay. But it was also kind of coupled with, you know, uh, sonic advancements, you know. Right, it, it wasn't right. like a total sonic throwback like we're trying to make nostalgia records, but they right. were new records, they were modern sounding, but they pulled kind of that songwriting element from its uh, traditional roots. Yeah, it was it was also kind of like broad a Um, We were joking earlier
1: about like it brought back the cowboy boots, but it also brought the eyeglasses with it. You know, like it was like the it was refined. It was exactly it was a a, (laughs) sort of the a a new intellectual strain uh, or that might be overstating it, but a new sort of like cultural literacy to country music's roots that hadn't necessarily existed uh, in that way before.
0: It was a a thinking man in the barroom. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I I look back on that era with fondness so much so, honestly, that I kind of would like to see another return of traditional country music.
1: A a new, new traditionalist movement.
0: And that's exactly (laughs) what we could call it. Yeah, Yeah, it has a ring to it. (laughs) There is one question, though, that that we didn't ask uh, Radney that I, I wish we had. What's that? And it's, do people more often mispronounce his name as Randy or as Rodney, because <laughs> Rodney kind of lands right in between the it two. It does. It splits the difference so precisely, I can't even see it
1: teetering one way or the other. <laughs> right. Yeah. right.
0: And I don't know if he's been asked that question before. I, I haven't seen it in an interview.
1: I think probably uh, he has not been, because that's a dumb question. No, no, no. That's the kind of <laughs> hard-hitting journalism that we need to be marked by. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. Uh, so, and I think if we lead with a question like that, we'd, our interviews would be a lot shorter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would be followed by a click. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> well, uh, let's give a listen to the questions that we did ask him <laughs> <laughs> Sure thing.
1: Radney, welcome to Songcraft.
2: Oh, thanks so much, Scott. Thanks, Paul.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you with us. And, um, you know, you've just recently released this new single called All That I Require. And um, you've written a lot of different types of songs over the years and explored a lot of different territory. But this is probably one of the most explicitly political songs that you've written. And it incorporates, you know, rhetoric from from Mussolini and Stalin and Hitler and kind of challenges the listener to reflect on the seductive but dangerous lure of, of demagogues and fascists. And you know, the, the hook is your pantries will be full and your faith will be inspired. The blood of all your children is all that I require. So, you know, heavy stuff. And we're, we're definitely in this kind of political climate of fear and, and anger that is certainly distressing, but I'm curious what specifically prompted you to write about this subject. And in a larger sense, as a person who's had a great commercial um, career as a songwriter and artist, where do you kind of place yourself in the long tradition of singer songwriter as social commentator or or even protester really
2: you know uh I really wrote this song because um it had been building in me for quite some time i I had been seeing and hearing what I really believed to be sort of uh demagoguery and fascist rhetoric or even sort of the the thought process and uh, and how it is sort of pervading both on the left and the right, um, you know, and and certainly, I mean, it was it was fomented, I think, you know, by Mr. Trump. He's leading the pack, no doubt. But yeah. but the, but you know, I think sometimes students at a university who decide that they're going to shout down a speaker that might be a conservative that they don't like, instead of letting him or her speak their piece, um, that's fascism. Yeah, you know, it's got all the hallmarks of it. You right. know, and uh, be it on the. That's one of the reasons I really tried to t- take some things from Stalin too, because either extreme, you know, sort of leads to nothing but bad behavior, yeah, and right. it never ends well. i kind of get to that at the end of the song. i am mega strong again, and you'll sleep safely in your beds. I'll rain down hell upon those dirty mongrels' heads. Your pantries will be full and your faith will be inspired, and the blood of all your children is all that I require. So I really, I felt like a, if I was just going to write something that was political, you know, from my own perspective, that nobody would listen to it other than people that would I was already preaching to the choir or right. something.
3: You know, yeah, and I felt right.
2: like, well, let me challenge people, and let me try to write something as a writer that will stand the test of time. I mean, I think it's what Woody would have done. Mm, yeah, uh, Being Woody Guthrie for your younger listeners. So <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> right? Um, you know, and, and that you write something that not only, you know, has to do with the current time period, but, um, you know, going forward might be a cautionary tale for Generations to come, hopefully, mm, yeah. and yeah um, so I thought thinking about that, I thought well let's go back to some of the rhetoric from the thirties, and I actually went back and did research and you know saw what all the different slogans were and and took them and uh and it's it's actually it's been wild how much it's gone over even amongst my conservative wow. uh friends or fans i mean i've had some i've had some uh some naysayers, you know,
3: yeah.
2: wagging their finger at me, and I—I I knew that. I—I kind of felt like, at this point, that you know, my country was more important to me than losing a gig. <laughs> and, uh, right. The and and I've always had social commentary in my in my songs, but you're correct. This is the most, you know, overtly sort of dealing with the political world yeah. that we've done. Although, you know, on, on my last record, I had a song called Not in My House about hate speech. And, right. Um, on the record before that with the title, the title cut, you know, uh, the song A Little Revival from the Revival record is as much as it's a, I think that I always introduce it as being a, um, gospel song a bluegrass song a protest song and a punk song all rolled into one <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: right it's its own genre
2: and and, and and i like all those differences you know right. So, yeah, right and and i felt like that uh something like you know what's the so fu- i was really you know thinking about things like you know what's so funny about peace love and understanding mm-hmm. and some of my favorite songs that were in that vein and yeah and it felt that you know i needed to be honest about you know um saying that, you know, really looking at it from a place of love rather than from a place of a- anger. Yeah,
1: right, right.
0: Well, you know, we always ask our interview subjects about kind of their upbringing, and, you know, it, Texas might just be the holy land for American singers, <laughs> songwriters, <laughs> and troubadours. Um, and you grew up in Del Rio in the 1960s. Talk to us about your earliest musical influences as a kid.
2: I have to say that the the biggest, you know, I heard well, a couple things. You know, as far as hearing things on the radio, I was right on the border, and um, that XERF was right across. It was one of the the border blasters, and there was a guy on there at night whose name was Paul Callinger, who's now in the DJ Hall of Fame, and he would spin Trucker records. You know, yeah. in the in the late '60s and in the '70s, and he didn't care if uh, Nashville thought it was country music. You know, if, if if he thought it would keep the Trucker awake, and it had a beat, and it was kind of country in some way he would play it. So he didn't really care if it was um treating Revival into Dave Dudley, into, you know, Willie Nelson into Sleep at the Wheel, into you know, go from there. You know right. and so yeah. um uh, and certainly being a little kid, you know, uh with the transistor under the covers that was a big influence.
3: But right. the biggest
2: influence was my dad played guitar and sang, he was a lawyer and he was a really good singer and a terrible guitar player. <laughs> you know, but it, but it didn't matter because you know on any given Saturday night that I really remember, um, you know, there was always music. You know, somebody brought the barbecue, somebody brought the potato salad, somebody brought the beer, and everybody brought an instrument, and they would play on the back porch till you know late into the night. Yeah, and yeah. and they played everything from you know, Fats Waller to Elvis to you know. Hank Sr. to Ray Price to Patsy Cline to, you know, whatever they thought was cool and only had three or four chords. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. You know, that duff a lot of country music. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. And that really was my musical education. Mm. I, I, the older I get, the more astounded I become at how, you know, looking back, how influential that really, really was.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was telling my dad the other day that we are going to interview you and uh, my dad... Uh, Woody Bomar is in the music publishing business for our listeners who don't, don't know that, but, uh,
2: I've known your dad a long time. Yeah.
1: He said, uh, I remember Radney, uh, used to come play songs for me when I worked at combine music and he was like a college student at the university of the South and in, in Suwannee. And so I'm curious, you know, I have this image of you as a, as a college kid, just being, you know, about an hour and a half outside of Nashville and going down and, and getting folks to listen to your songs. Um, did you go to school in Tennessee to be uh kind of close to the the songwriting world or what kind of got you to that point and how did you make that um kind of transition from college kid to professional songwriter?
2: Uh, not at all did I go to Swanee to, you know, pursue a music career. Um it really did happen by accident. Um you know, I I I was certainly enamored and you know, I had bands in high school and and you know, played uh happy hour at the Ramada Inn and, you know, all those kinds of things. But right. you know, real people got real jobs. Yeah. You know, they didn't right. go hauling off and go be a songwriter and a singer. <laughs> what are you talking about?
3: You know, right, right.
2: I was expected to go to uh you know, go to college and go to law school and go home and take over the family business, you know. So right. but uh my junior year, um I had several different configurations of bands. You know, I had a duo with a buddy and I was in a bluegrass band and we had kind of a band that was sort of a uh, uh, for lack of, you know, the best analogy would be sort of the nitty-gritty dirt band. You know, it was really acoustic and folk music. Right, so So right. uh, this guy comes up after a set, and he was older, and uh, this was up to 20, and he said, uh, what band does those three songs? And the guys in the band started laughing, and they said, well, you know, you can't get them. You know, our, our singer wrote them. And, uh, and he said, I don't know anything about them, you know music business but um I got a buddy who's a you know producer and a songwriter who's in Nashville I'm like yeah 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 right sure you know <laughs> <laughs> sure thing buddy you right. know? so he uh he said no 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 give me your name and so i I write my name and my phone number which is the pay phone at the end of the hall in the dorm <laughs> right you know, <laughs> that's, that's, you that's know? and uh, I write it on a matchbook and I give it to him I thought that is nothing' ever of this. And, well sure enough two weeks later there's a note tag to my door and it says, call Brown Bannister. as has a 615 area code. I was like, why do I know that name? Why do I know that name? It's like, well, every girl in at Swanee, you know, in their dorm just about, you know, had an Amy Grant record. And right. And Grant records. <laughs> right. right. You know? right. So I was like, no, that's a real guy. <laughs> so I <laughs> right. called him up, you know. And, uh, and he said, "Man, my buddy tells me that you're really, really good." And he heard me play four or five songs, and he said, "You know, you got to seriously have a conversation with your mom and dad about doing this for a living." Hmm. And uh, that got me the bug. And so I took a year off from college and thought I was going to be the next Elvis by the time I was 21. And all right. That didn't that didn't really work out. You know, <laughs> so I went back to college. But all during that time period, I would go back and forth in that in my senior year. And yeah you know i had a couple of publishers uh, your dad being one of them that that wouldn't throw me out of their office <laughs> mm.
0: well your first real success as a songwriter uh, came a little while later when sweethearts of the rodeo had a top 10 hit with your song since i found you in 1986 That's a song that was co-written with Bill Lloyd, who would really factor pretty heavily into your early career. Tell us how you guys, you know, got to the point of writing that song and how you were working together as a songwriting team right there at the start.
2: Well, um, we both got signed to Mary Tyler Moore Music. She had made so much money in the television world that, uh, you know, she started a a record and publishing company. And so uh, I got signed as a country writer and Bill got signed as a rock writer, rock and pop writer. And, you know, there was kind of a thought process in both of us, like, well, you know, if I write with that guy, maybe they'll pay more attention over on the other side to my rock songs, and then vice versa. Maybe, you know, he thought, well, maybe they'll pay more attention to my country songs. Right. And we were both the young bucks. You know, we didn't, you know, we didn't really have a whole lot of connections, and we were uh, younger than most of the other writers, and so, you know... They had better air conditioning in the office than we did in our apartment. You she know, go down there and hang out all day. You know? Right. And so it's like, hey man, you want to ride a song? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. You know. And then we found that you know it kind of worked. And you know, my tune plugger, the person who was really in charge of you know my career at that point, said like she made me quit coming. We used to have these meetings every Monday of who was cutting. You know, and you know these guys would go in or room on Tuesday, and they would write something tailor-made for, you know, T.G. Shepherd or for, you know, Eddie Rabbit or something, and right. then sure enough, you know, they'd demo it on Friday, and then it'd get t- cut two weeks later, and then three months later, it was on the radio, you know, Yeah. and I thought that was my job, I thought that's what I was supposed to do, and, you know, she said, I hate what you're doing when you're trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh shit, she's going to fire me, you know, and uh, she said, no, 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 but I like what you're doing on your own. Go ride at home. Don't come to the meetings, but keep also keep riding with that Bill Lloyd guy because there's something really special going on there, and it kind of created a sound all on its own.
1: Right. Hmm. So in the summer of 1987, Holly Dunn went to number two on the Billboard chart with "Love Someone Like Me," which you mm-hmm. and Holly wrote together. Um, but by that time, you and Bill had landed an artist deal with RCA and were soon climbing the charts with your own self-penned top-five hit, "Crazy Over You." Van Shelton actually recorded and released that same song about the same time on his debut album *Wild-eyed Dream*. So here you were launching uh, this artist career, but all these other people were also recording your songs. And I'm curious, in those early days, was there any concern on your part that you might be pulled in different directions about whether or not you are a, a songwriter or an artist?
2: You know, it really didn't. I mean, I, I never expected to be in a duo, and that kind of felt pretty natural. And I think the thing that we learned to do is just to sort of follow your own artistic instincts. And the the interesting part is is that it just kind of happened all on its own, without right. having to. I think the organicness of it. You know, Bill had already had a, an indie rock record that he was about to put out. He'd gotten signed to a label out of Boston, and so. He had a buddy who was working at RCA, and he put, you know, on one side of the cassette, he put his indie record, and on the other side he put, you know, about eight country songs that he'd written with me. And so his friend uh, Randy, Randy Goodman, uh, listened to it and was like, "Oh my God, this is an act." Yeah. And th- that thing got passed around all over RCA, and they actually kind of got in trouble because Joe Galante, the head of the label, called him in and said, "Man, I didn't." You know, hire you guys to go try to get your drinking buddies and your college friends (laughs) on. Right. And he's like, no, no, no. You got to hear it. It's really good. Right, right. That's funny. That ended up being the, you know, the lion's share of the songs that were on that first Foster and Lloyd record.
0: Yeah. Well, after that hit, Crazy Over You, uh, two more singles from that Foster and Lloyd debut album hit the top ten. Sure thing. And What Do You Want From Me this time? But I actually want to ask you about the song Texas in 1880, another track from that record that you re-recorded with Pat Green on your album Are You Ready for the Big Show in 2001.
2: And I'll ride
3: Like a cowboy from the past and wild and free Like
2: Texas
0: in um, Tell us about that song and what prompted you to revisit it 14 years after the original recording?
2: Well, um, I had gotten basically talked my parents into letting me go to Nashville and take a year off from college. I could get a sabbatical, you know, to take a year off without having to reapply and all that kind of stuff up at Swanee. So they said, you can try that. And I said, okay. And so my mother's best friend, who was a rancher's daughter like my mom, uh, had made me a banana bread. And she said, as she handed it to me as I was loading my Volkswagen full of everything I owned, (laughs) um, Radney, that that music business is just like rodeo, and it'll get in your blood, and you can't get it out. Hmm. And I said, I'll be careful. you know. <laughs> and so I got about 90 miles down the road, and it kind of haunted me. And I wrote the first verse to Texas in 1880. And I couldn't write my way out of a wet paper bag at that point. <laughs> I'm only 20 years old, and then, right. you know, really still just trying to learn. So it, it haunted me. And it went from apartment to apartment, from cassette to cassette, from you know notepad to notepad with me working on it. And it never could, it had different courses, it had different, it, it never could just wrap my head around it. But I knew that first verse was really film. Right. And uh, so I asked everybody in the world to write it with me. And, mm-hmm. and Bill, including, he says, the worst mistake of his life was not sitting down and writing that thing <laughs> Right. <laughs> get something out um the guys from dual tone records called me they'd both been at ariston they called me they said hey man we hear you're starting a record label in your basement i said yes i am they said (laughs) well we're starting one in our basement we should have lunch (laughs) we go to lunch and i tell them that i've got the tracks from two nights at the continental club and uh you know i had been touring a bunch in texas and so we listen to all the tracks and they said the "Song of Texas" in 1880. You know that song. If you re-released that thing and did, you know, the way you do it now, it, you know, why don't you go in and do one bonus track right. or two bonus tracks that are studio tracks on this live record? Hmm. It's easier to get studio tracks played on the radio. Sure. It's like okay, and so we kind of talked about it, and I said, people are like." You know, talking about the duet parts and changing. You know, because Bill sang some of the lines in the song and the bridge, and right. and and so I kind of suggested, why don't you know, why don't we call up Pat Green? You know, he's been yeah. playing a bunch of shows with me, and so I called Pat, and he's like, "Oh my God, I would love that." You know?
3: yeah, hmm. yeah,
2: So it was right at the apex of when the you know all of those things were starting to happen, and his career was blowing up. and Of course, I released it. All of a sudden, it just took off. Wow,
1: wow. wow. Um, all the songs on that first Foster & Lloyd album were written by either you or, or Bill Solo or you guys together as a team. Um, but your second album had a song called Fair Shake that became another top-five single that was written by uh, you and Bill and the legendary Guy Clark. And I don't know... Um, how many songs you guys wrote with Guy, but there's another fantastic uh, Foster, Lloyd, and Clark composition called Picasso's Mandolin that Guy recorded on his Boats to Build album in 1992.
2: Well, you can play it straight or play it from left field. You got to play it just the way you feel. Come on, boy.
1: Talk about working with Guy and what you learned about the craft of songwriting from him.
2: I learned everything. I mean, uh, you know, it was the going. It was going to school with a master, really. Hmm. Then Guy Clark came and played my junior year at Soane, and I was standing in the audience. You know, if you'd have told me that seven years later I was going to be writing songs with him, I'd called you a liar. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but you know, we just hit it off, and we wrote three or four with him. And then I wrote again with him later solo. Yeah. Um, although nothing ever stuck, really. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It was just you know, it was such a learning process from him. You know, the, the, the biggest thing I remember is we got through. You know, Fair Shake was the first song we ever wrote with it. Hmm. Huh. And the cool part was, you know, we got through, and and guy would write in real exacting script on on graph paper, huh. and uh, and we got through with the song, and he had all the, we, what we thought was through with the song, and he had all the lyrics written out. And then he took an exacto knife and a straight edge, and he cut the couplets all up.
3: Huh. Jeez, wow.
2: And he said, now we get to really figure out how this thing goes. <laughs> and we put them all, and we would like, well, maybe that goes there, or maybe this second verse is the first verse, or maybe wow. this second couplet in the second verse is the first two lines you know that's cool. we yeah. sat figure figured out and it changed yeah know? it changed around because of cutting it up like that
1: right there's something a lot more romantic sounding about that than uh writing on a computer and cutting and pasting <laughs> things around yeah i know right
2: yeah you know, and, and uh well also on the first time we wrote with him this is a, an awesome story and uh we were we were nervous as hell, you know, and so we go up, and he has this little attic. And as a matter of fact, um, it was in your dad's, uh, you know, in in the old combine building. It was EMI Publishing by that time, but he had an attic uh, office on the third floor, and uh, the phone rings, and all of a sudden he goes, "Hey, hello, yeah," he's talking to some guy, and he goes, "No, I've been around with these guys, Foster and Lloyd. It's really cool." It's like, "Well, hang on," he puts his hand over the receiver and goes. You guys mind if Townsman Jack comes by well wow, i like, oh my god
1: you're like Am i no dreaming right now you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i think
2: that'll be okay <laughs> yeah absolutely guys i come right. on by i know? think we can yeah. deal with that right you know <laughs> so if you're gonna say no right, right. You know? <laughs> so you know for the next 15 minutes bill and i pretend to write songs you know and trying to get something done you know right. we're terrified and, and uh, all of a sudden, we hear this big commotion down in 17th Avenue, and we throw open the sash, and three grown men stick their heads out the, <laughs> the um, dormer window, look right. down in the street. And Towns Van Zant is cutting donuts in the middle of 17th Avenue on a cream colored. Vespa scooter with a matching Italian helmet <laughs> I'm not making this up <laughs> he wanted to show his buddy his new scooter right. you know? <laughs> so, so we all go rushing down and we go see the new scooter and ooh and ah and then Tams comes up and you know Got rolled some smoke on the back of his guitar. We didn't get any songwriting done. That's incredible. We'll to finish the next day, but it's one of the better afternoons of my life. That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, who cares if you didn't get a song that day? Yeah, it doesn't matter. So cool. Well, in 1989 and 1990, there were four more Foster and Lloyd singles. Um, Only one of them, Can't Have Nothing, managed to push into the Billboard Top 40. Um, but at the same time, the Forrester sisters had a top 10 with Leave It Alone, which you and Bill wrote together. Then Tanya Tucker and T. Graham Brown had a top 10 with your and Bill's Don't Go Out. Um, was that frustrating for you guys to see the songs that you wrote together becoming hits for other artists rather than for you guys?
2: It was lucrative, but frustrating, yes. You know? <laughs> but I mean, mixed bag. Yeah, it was a mixed bag because, you know, um, but yeah, you wished that there was, you know, and I think that there was, a, we had put out one thing, there was a song that, that Joe Galante really, really loved, and it was, you know, sort of one of the poppiest things on the record. And, and, you know, Fair Shake had just gone gangbusters, and we thought, you know, we had wanted something really country from off of that record. You know, Because yeah. we sort of saw a tide turning in a more country direction, and we're like, Hey, man, we love Buck Owens and the Beatles. That's why we sound the way we do, you know? And so we had something that was really more of that kind of thing, and I think that's what they wanted from us. You know, RCA was having so much success with pop crossovers by um, people like Restless Heart. Mm,
3: Right.
2: You know, Joe was kind of determined, no, this thing could be a massive, massive hit. And it was really a bridge too far. And then when it it died, I mean, it, it tanked. Yeah. And when it did, it made the struggle hard to get back in the graces of radio because right, we were already different to begin with. We were hard to work yeah, to start. You makes know? sense. And, and, uh, cause we played like punk kids, you know, and we, you know, had, you know, long hair and earrings, you know, <laughs> right. Things like right. That, you know, very different. It, that, that seems so normal now, but it was really different at the time. Uh, you know but that, that and it was it was frustrating but that's kind of what happened you know yeah. it just that's once you fall off that wagon it's very difficult to get right there. yeah it's, it's it's climbing that mountain that second time is much tougher
3: yeah yeah
1: well by 1992 you and bill had had gone your separate ways and you released your first solo album del rio texas 1959 um The debut single, Just Call Me Lonesome, hit the top 10. There were a total of five charting singles released uh, from that debut solo album. Uh, The most successful, of course, was Nobody Wins, which you co-wrote with uh, Kim Ritchie and was a big hit. point in your career you were in your early 30s and you had written at least 10 top 10 hits if we're if we're going by billboard alone Um, but and and, you know more than half of those were songs that you also performed as an artist and and I'm curious for a guy you know a young guy who's already had that kind of success um, in what ways did having that success impact your creative process whether that be you know, in a positive way through the added sense of confidence or even in a negative way with feeling an increased sense of pressure or, or did that success really impact your creative process?
2: I think it gave me confidence. Really? I, I want to answer this question by going back to Foster Lloyd's first record. Hmm. We went in with, it's like, if we don't go in and do this fearlessly and, you know, do this the way we want to and, and, you know, tell the record label that, hmm. Then you know what's the point? You know because yeah. I don't want to do it unless we're going in to make art. And so we told them that very thing, and they were like, "You can do anything you want. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can produce it yourselves. You can do anything you want." Yeah. And so I mean, it was really that that made me go, "Okay, I know I want to do something different. I know I don't want it to sound like Foster and Lloyd Light." Hmm. You know, I think that, that was one. more pressure than anything else. Was I think that there are songs that were good songs. I probably left off that record because. It's a little too Foster and lloyd esque you know. Uh, right.
3: Like I need
2: to, I need to prove that I can do this myself. And yep. and the best part, I think one of the most freeing parts and frustrating parts at the same time was um, uh, Tim Dubois was who had been Foster and Lloyd's manager was my A&R guy. Hmm. And he was ahead oh. of the label, but he also was my A&R guy. Right. And sitting across that desk from him, and he was really, and he was a great songwriter. He'd written dozens of, you know, big hits. He really right. knew what he was doing. And he knew a lot about me and knew who I was and, you know, what I was trying to say and what I was trying to do. And he said, you know, I get five and you get five. I said, what do you mean? He said, as long as I have five singles, you can have the other five. Mm-hmm. Say what you want. I said, well, I want it to be cohesive. And he said, I do too. <laughs> and, you know, and so we would sit and argue and, Go over songs and play different songs. And I'd bring in new stuff, and he kept telling me, "You know, I don't I have." He said, "I've got. You've got everything you need on the record except one thing." and I said, "What's that?" He said, a, "A hit single for a brand new baby act that no one's ever heard of, even though everybody's already heard of you." Hmm. Right. You got to pretend that no one's ever heard of you. And, yeah. And I was like, "I don't know how to write that other than just to keep <laughs> writing, as right. we look for it." You right. Know? And he said. Because I, you know, every time I've tried to chase that, you know, I got told by my poet. And he said, "Oh, I know." I said, "And the world's not, you know, crying for one." And he said, "And you got some royalty money coming in from a bunch of stuff, so why don't you just sit here and write?" Right. And I did. And then, you know, he asked me one day, and he said, uh, "Said, uh, you know, I've, I'd gone in, and I played him like three songs. And he's like, nope, nope.' nope. Said that last <laughs> one's pretty good. It might replace one of the other ones we got in the pile." And that that was the song Hammer and Nails and some clothes on the record and yeah. then I, she said but you got anything else she said I'm still needing that first single and I said I don't know I got this kind of bucko and shuffle thing I don't know if it's worth a it damn or not you know and I played him Just Call Me Once and he stood on his desk he literally <laughs> got up on his desk and stood on his desk and said that's it
3: that's it
2: that's it he said don't fuck it up
3: <laughs> uh, that's great
0: well uh You released a couple more albums for the Arista label, uh, Labor of Love in 1995 and See What You Want to See in 1999. You know, the latter album was considerably more pop influenced than your earlier efforts, but ironically, it proved to be a huge success for you in terms of country artists mining cover songs and landing some serious hits on the Billboard chart for you as a writer. Uh, The first was the Kinleys, who recorded the song I'm In and made it a top 40 hit in 2000 before Keith Urban revived it once again, taking it to number two on the Billboard chart in 2010. Now, we know songs, of course, are not static and they can find new life and new meaning in different circumstances. But have you been surprised by the way your song catalog has been able to adapt uh, through all the changing trends in the country genre?
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) In a word. Um, Absolutely. In a word, yes. I think one of the things is that I try very hard. I got accused of this by a critic once and it really pissed me off because of... You know, that I was just basically making records that were demos for someone else to go cut the songs and have hits with, you know. And and it was at a time when I was really trying to, you know, make a statement. And I thought they were dead wrong, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, But I I think that the fortunate part has been that for whatever reason, you know, I go make records and there are other people who put more zeroes you know, after their record sales, who are fans, you know, they yeah. grew up, you know, Keith Urban grew up a fan, yeah. you know, and so did a lot of others, you know, and so having that accent, they, they're they like, I gotta hear this new Rodney Foster record, yeah. and then they realize it's like, he's over there in Americana and Texas, and it's like, hell, anything with Texas stuff, it's already been a single down there, it's gonna help me. Right, you know? right. So, I think that's been one of the Keys to it, and there wasn't any way for me to sort of, you know, like you, you couldn't have, have said, oh, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I can't plan something will like that. This would be my formula for success. <laughs> it would blow up in your right. face, and it would right. be horrible, and, you know, yeah. you know. And uh, so the, the fact of the matter is, is that actually, you know, as opposed to what the critic had said, it's been the complete opposite. I've mm. always known that when I tried to chase anything, that it would blow up in my face. Yeah. And when I didn't try to chase it, And it just followed my heart that I would be successful.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, even though it's not a formula that you could formulate, (laughs) I mean, it does work. I mean, besides I'm In, another song from that album that Keith Urban recorded was Raining on Sunday, which was a top three country hit, as well as a top 40 pop hit in 2002. You know, another one of the classic songs from your third solo album is Godspeed, Sweet Dreams. And that's been recorded by Nick Lachey and most memorably by the Dixie Chicks on their multi-platinum home album. Tell us a bit about that one.
2: You know, um, I wrote that for my oldest boy. He was, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned that I had, you know, in 1995 and then didn't have another record up until 1999. I went through this massive upheaval and tumultuous time in my life. I, mm. I got a divorce during that time period. I got remarried. I went through a lawsuit because my my ex-wife married a guy from France and she was moving there and taking my child. And oh, You know, so yeah, I have got a five, you know, I fought it in court and lost and. And it was a mess, you know. Yeah. So here I have my child going halfway around the world, and I'm just trying to figure out how to be. How am I going to be a dad, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, from Nashville when he's living in Normandy, and so I wrote a lullaby for him because he was only, you know, four or five years old, and mm. so um I wrote this lullaby, and I recorded it with just me and a guitar, you know, and then I put it on the cassette like five or six times in a row so he could go to sleep. Yeah, and know that I loved it. Wow! So the Dixie Chicks heard it because um, Natalie Maines had had a baby boy, and my wife said we've got to get a. And they had they had been opening for me hmm. oh, back wow. in the day. Nice, you know, back in Texas. You yeah. Know, they Ha <laughs> ha. Send us all the songs, you know, send us songs that you think, you know, would be good for them because they can do more bluegrassy, you know, record yeah. they're going to make it in Texas, you know. So I sent them everything I think that they should do, you know, to the management and to them personally, you know, mail out, you know, right. multiple CDs. But I didn't tell anybody else about Godspeed, you know, I just sent Natalie. You know, she yeah. walked in.
1: The opening song on um, your 2002 album, Another Way to Go, is A Real Fine Place to Start, which of course became a number one hit for uh, Sarah Evans in 2005. touched on the idea of other artists having hits with with your songs and this question isn't really so much about the the success of of other artists with your material but really more what the experience is like for you to kind of hear other voices um interpret your songs to almost have the unique experience of having the opportunity to hear someone else's interpretation of your work and get as, as close to a third person experience of your own music as, as you possibly could.
2: Yeah. I, you know, at, at first, um, when I was younger, it's like, they're not doing it right.
3: You know, <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> they did, well, of course they did. They did it their way. Yeah and, yeah. and now I'm, I'm, I'm completely at the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm just curious as to what they did with it. Yeah. You know, what did they feel like was important about the song hmm. and the chord change? And even like the, yeah. Said, yeah. Oh, wow.
1: Probably comes with with the years of uh, maturity and comfortability in your own skin that come mm-hmm. from once you really know who you are. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't bother you to let someone else interpret it. No, it, what I, you it
2: do. doesn't. Mean, it's not like fingernails on a chalkboard anymore. <laughs> right, right,
3: right. right.
0: Well, you know a couple of the guys that have taken your songs into the top forty are, are Pat Green, who charted with Three Days in two thousand two, and Jack Ingram who made Measure of a Man, a hit in 2007. And I mention these two because they're guys who, like you, are very much associated with Texas, but they've also found success through the Nashville music industry. Do you feel any kind of tension between kind of the maverick spirit of the Texas songwriting tradition and the established ways of doing things in Nashville?
2: Absolutely. Huh. It's always been there. It's, always, it's going back to... You know uh, the '30s. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's been uh, there's been a sort of a Nashville way of doing things. There's always been one, and, mm-hmm. and it's not wrong. It's it's you know it's produced a juggernaut. You know, um, it's just different. And mm-hmm. you you know, then for that reason alone, there's going to be tension. In the same mm-hmm. way that there was tension between Bakersfield and Nashville. You yeah, know? right. You know, or or LA, really. I mean, you know, all those. "Quote unquote," Bakersfield records were cut for the most part at Capitol Records Studio B, yeah. Mm. And um, and there was a, you know, there was always a difference between how people thought about it, you know, uh, and and it didn't make any difference whether it was twangy or poppy or anything else. It was just different because Mm. the different ethic and different sets of players and different guys looking at things different ways, you know. I mean. You, we tend to think of, of the, the California country sound as, as or I do, as Wynn Stewart, Buck Owens, you know, Merle Haggard, Lynn Anderson, all that stuff. But, you know, uh, Glenn Campbell was hmm. a pop session player. Right. And did this pop country stuff. And yeah. I usually hate that stuff. And I would <laughs> sit and listen to him all day long. Right, you know? right, yeah. And uh, prove me wrong big time. Yeah. yeah. Right. uh you know and plus i think that it's a great example of you know of a singer mining the work of a writer in to incredible success you know i mean yeah. I, if it hadn't have been for jimmy webb you know glenn would never have had the career he had and if it hadn't been for glenn jimmy would
1: would have never had the career right he had right either. sure yeah synergy um Well, speaking of uh, collaborations, in 2008, Dirks Bentley charted with the song Sweet and Wild, which he wrote with Jay Clemente. Um, And since then, you and Jay have co-written songs that have been recorded by Darius Rucker, Luke Bryan, Sonny Sweeney, Sarah Evans, and others, and kind of much in the way that Bill Lloyd kind of uh, dominated a lot of your co-writing activity in the early days. It seems like um, Jay's name pops up a lot more frequently in your more recent material. Um, Talk about uh, how you guys began working together, and in a more general sense, for you, um, what makes for a successful, long-term, collaborative songwriting relationship?
2: I think what makes for a successful, long-term, collaborative relationship is really the, the product, the end product. You know, hmm. Jay is like a little brother to me, and uh, I, I kind of mentored him into the business. And, and he, like myself, is a fly-fishing nut,
3: hmm.
2: you know. And so a friendship was born, yeah. and, but out of that was also born some great songs. And so and some success. Yeah, and and I have other writers, you know, I've been very successful writing with um uh Gordy Samson and, and several other people. And I and you know, the more you co write too, you know, for me anyway, sometimes guys at Nashville, you know, lose the art of writing by themselves. Huh. And uh um I've been fortunate in that I don't I think it drives me the other way. It mm. makes me try harder and I learn more from riding with other people yeah yeah interesting uh,
0: your last studio album was Everything I Should Have Said uh, featuring the incredibly honest title track
2: everything I should have
0: I listen to a song like that, or to your latest single, All That I Require, and I hear a master songwriter who doesn't hold back when it comes to personal expression. You know, as fans, what can we expect next from Radney Foster?
2: I'm always learning things as a craftsman, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, just writing a hit love song. You mm. know, But I've gotten to the point, and, I, and there'll be some of those on my next record, but to me, if it doesn't really speak something to me very intensely personally, Um, then I, as an artist, I mean, I might go pitch that song if it's a great song, but as an artist, I feel like it's got to have that connection to my soul. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that makes a difference in an artist, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I started asking myself, you know, boil down what it is that you really do. Mm. What's your job? Mm. And then I came up with that I'm a storyteller. So I asked myself, I was like, well, what ways are you telling stories as a songwriter that you shouldn't be? And hmm. what ways are you telling stories as a songwriter that you should? And uh did that, but it also opened up other doors. Like, my next record's going to have a companion book of short fiction to go with it. It's going to be a short story for every song on the record. Yeah. But I've been writing because I started writing short fiction, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm in a play, you know, I'm doing all right. kinds of different
1: stuff. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. We sure appreciate it.
2: Our oh, pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening.
1: We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by
0: searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.